Annie Alamon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. I usually am on these podcasts, but no one's aware of that. Yeah, we're we're turning you from behind the mic to a in front of the camera, in front of the mic role here as we do my last podcast at ASP. So we're going to change it around. And instead of me asking the questions, you're going to be asking the questions for us. For, for listeners, Annie is the one who has always done all of the editing, all of the setup, all of the outlining of all of our podcasts. So she is deeply involved in this, but now she's moving in front of the mic. And I know she's going to be doing some, some other ones in, in the upcoming weeks and months. I am. I'm not particularly looking forward to editing my voice, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, and this is the last stop on your farewell tour. Looking back at your time at ASP, you spent almost a quarter of your life working for ASP. I was thinking about that last night, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, not, to, not to give away your age to the audience, <laughs> but in this time between 2011 and 2021, what are you seeing as like the ongoing trends, like the similarities from the time you started at ASP to now leading and starting your new association? Yeah. So in my decade at ASP, starting in 2011, certainly a lot of the things in the headlines were different. If you think back to 2011 and then even before that to 2006, 2005, when ASP was founded, a lot of the focus was around terrorism, ongoing war in Iraq, in Iraq, the politics around all of that stuff, and Islamofascism, Islamoterrorism, all that sort of stuff was a, a very deeply ingrained part of American national security context. And a lot of what ASP was doing was A, looking at the, that work and saying, are we winning? Are we actually meeting the goals that we were doing? And then number two was, are we right to be focused on this? And are we right to be focused on terrorism and you know small groups of individuals who can do a lot of harm versus thinking about competition with with states or thinking about you know non-state actors like or non personnel actors, things like climate change, energy security these sort of threat multiplier concepts. And so ASP, I think, has been pretty valuable in widening the lens of national security away from just Middle East terrorists and, and thinking about what's a broader picture national security. So I actually remember this time. So when I was in undergrad, roughly at the same time, the entire focus was on counterterrorism, was looking at the 9-11 Commission report, was... Everyone was stating Arabic. That was like the hot language. No one wanted to study Chinese or, or Russian or what have you. Yeah. And I remember my senior year in college, I took this one class called Borders, like studying like how borders change between countries and like the entire concept behind them. And at the end of the class, she, the professor went around in the seminar, asked us what we thought the biggest threat to national security would be. And most people, including myself, were like terrorism, counterterrorism, asymmetric actors, et cetera. And she was like, no, you're all wrong. It's climate change. And at the time, I had just never heard of that. And it blew my mind and to this day where I still remember that conversation. And right. it's so interesting now to look at how, how the dynamic has changed over time. And instead of fighting against like particular actors, you're kind of fighting against a concept. 
Right. And the actors exist within these concepts and exist within these, these broader things. And, and in a lot of ways, it doesn't translate very well into politics. You know, the, the politics of national security work a lot better in the United States when there's an enemy. When there's an enemy to organize against, you can get a lot of unity and a lot of ways to, to pull things together. And, you know, I, I think back my, my formative time in politics and when I started working here in Capitol Hill when, in 2002 was, you know, only several months after 9-11, you know, working on Capitol Hill when the mail was all still very irradiated and, you know, we were still going through all of the anthrax time and everything like that. It was, there was a dose of unity because you were all able to kind of come together and be fighting against a, you know, common threat, com common enemy. It's in many ways, it's a lot easier to fight <laughs> against a bad guy than it is to unify around these amorphous threats, which are in a lot of ways more threatening, but they're also more difficult to deal with. And let's, let's take that apart a little bit. So ASP was originally founded in a spirit of bipartisanship, you know? Right. You and I have been in the same meetings. We say the same spiel. We were founded by then senators John Kerry and Chuck Hagel after John Kerry's presidential election to become a bipartisan forum for national security because right. they did and they still do believe, as do we, that national security should not be partisan. It's in everyone's best interest to have a strong national security in America, right. no matter what side of the spectrum you're on. But now, especially from 2016 to 2020, we saw a huge shift to partisanship, particularly looking at Cuba, which we have worked on quite extensively. It's own other bucket, but even climate change, looking right. at military resilience. And now what I'm seeing, at least starting from the end of 2020 through, through now, is more bipartisanship in national security. I see you disagreeing. <laughs> So I think we might have different takes on this. So uh, a couple of things. We are, ASP was founded as, as kind of a politics stops at the water's edge time. And if you think back to this time, there were a number of think tanks that, that were founded in that, that mid-aughts period. And most of them were partisan. Most of them were about, you know, either getting Democrats or getting Republicans right on terrorism, national security, you know, doing deeper dives into this sort of stuff. And to their credit, Kerry said, no, we need a we need a bipartisan way of looking at foreign policy. And we need to get back to this politics stops at the water's edge. And so, you know, we mentioned cool. Kerry and Hagel, obviously, but also Hart and Rudman, who had in 2000 put out the Hart-Rudman Commission, which both talked about the rise of the concepts, you know, things like climate change, energy security as problems in national security, but also predicted that there would be a major terrorist attack on the United States. So the Hart-Rudman Commission is one of these sort of founding ideas, founding documents that, that really is a, a go back to national security and go back to the U.S., uh, you know, ASP's founding sort of stuff. But Looking to right now, you know, you mentioned Cuba. Cuba's never going to be like the most important thing for American national security, but it's going to be something that is more a signifier 
of how you think about national security. Even, a, you know, it, Cuba was always outsized influence since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, Bay of Pigs, all that sort of stuff. It, beyond its, you know, it's a relatively small population island in the Caribbean. It's not that important. But the way you look at it kind of signifies how you look at foreign policy and what sort of wins you can get in foreign policy. You know, the, the Obama administration opening to Cuba was something that, that we at AS, ASP supported so much because it signified how you can, through diplomacy, get better national security. And I think that actually kind of comes down to where a lot of the opposition is on it, that the opposition to, to this idea that, that you can get your national security improved really is, do you believe in diplomacy or do you just believe in coercion? And I, I think we're not beyond that in you know, this, this emerging idea of, of partisanship or bipartisanship in, in US uh, thinking. See, and I disagree that Cuba isn't as important as it should be. I agree that it's like it is a symbol and it is like a landmark for for the rest of U.S. foreign policy. But I think the increasing presence of China, of Russia, of Cuba's relations with Venezuela makes it more and more important because it is on our back door, even though it is such a small country. But that is either here, here, or there. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I, I guess you could say similar things about other relatively small countries, you know, I mean, is Venezuela hugely important? For the region, it is. But, you know, U.S. national security is really based on a, a few core areas of the world. And, and, you know, for a century, Latin America hasn't been really thought of as that way. So it know. should be. It's in our back door. But yeah. that leads us into my next question. To make it clear to the audience, Andrew, until I think the end of today, is my boss. And he edits quite a bit of my documents and my writings outside the podcast. His consistent edit, without fail, is always getting rid of the term great power competition and changing it to strategic rivalry. I'm assuming that's one of the foreign policy trends you would wish would disappear, is less jargon, more concepts, which is what I hear a lot. Yeah, less jargon. You know, it, it, national security people love jargon. Love, you know, we 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 really have a, another strong rule is, is is to avoid acronyms as much as possible. The I think that's your rule. I don't think that's <laughs> my rule. <laughs> GPC, great power <laughs> competition. You know, if there's the people in sort of the national security community almost act like it's a priesthood, and if you don't have this insider knowledge of, you know, what's the JCPOA? Call it the Iran deal. Don't, don't call it the JCPOA. Everybody knows what the Iran nuclear deal is. You don't have to say joint comprehensive plan of agreement. You know, the, all of these sorts of things, you know, great power competition, strategic rivalry, whatever. It is based in fact, right? The world is more dangerous today because there are emerging rivals to American hegemony, And so the world is more dangerous because other countries are threatening, especially other countries are threatening that militarily. You know, they, they are seeking to replace isn't the right word because it, I, I don't know that 
Russia wants to replace the U.S. as kind of the global policeman. Russia just wants to not be policed. Russia, Russia wants to do what it wants to do and, uh, you know, throw its elbows among its neighbors and smaller, weaker nations. At its base, what, they, what Russia wants, and I think what China wants, and China is, is a bigger question about replacement and that sort of stuff. But it, it's a return to a world of might makes right, I'm strong, you're weak, I'm gonna take what I want, and I'm gonna use, use power to achieve aims. At its best, America is about ideals and about competition, about you know the rights of of nations and individuals to stand up on us on our own. Now, do we always meet those? No, of course not. No great power does. But I but I think that the example of the U.S. as a great power, as the hegemonic power, is that we we maybe do it a bit better than others because we have these these ingrained sort of ideal endowed by the Creator, as as they say in the Declaration. Coming off of that too, and how you just explain strategic, the strategic rivalry between China and the US really gets to the crux of what ASP tries to do. So we have a national climate security tour and have for years. Mm-hmm. And this kind of falls in line with the rest of our work in that we try to communicate beyond the beltway. Right. So especially now, foreign policy is really becoming entrenched in almost every aspect, one way or the other, of the American, the common American life, even if they don't necessarily realize it. Right. And it's incredibly important to talk to your audience that you're trying to educate in a language that they understand. And I think yeah. this is a really a brunt of my frustration within the Beltway is that you can talk to other other think tanks, you can talk to other policymakers in DC, and that's all fine and well. But if you're not talking to the rest of America, it means absolutely nothing because you don't have the constituency to support you in these larger policy fights, in these larger invasions, what have you. But you need to educate the rest of America and not just stick within the borders of DC. That's right. Yeah, you know, they, it is one of ASP's sort of founding ideals is, is as a 501c3 educational, but it's educational beyond just the beltway. It's not, it's not like we're educating members of Congress. We're educating the American public. We're trying to raise the level of knowledge, the re- level of awareness with, in, the, in the American public. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that's fighting against the tide. Very seldom is an American electoral campaign, uh, is there any salience of foreign policy, national security issues in it? The 2004 campaign was, was an exception in that yeah. respect, uh, in, in that the Iraq war and uh, terrorism was, was a big part in that, that electoral campaign. But other than that, there's, there's been few in my lifetime where a politician gets rewarded for talking about foreign policy. I mean, Joe Biden, the president now was, of course, he was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee before he became vice president uh, in 2008. How often did you hear him talking about that? He, he clearly believes that that's an important 
thing that that makes him uh, able to do the job well. But on the campaign trail, I don't think anybody heard that or talked about that at all. I think sometimes we, you know, that the political campaigner, the political sort of consultant class says, oh, don't talk about national security. It doesn't help. It doesn't, you know, you're not going to do anything. And the result is, is that it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. We don't, uh, we don't educate Americans about foreign policy, national security issues, because it seems like they don't care about it. But maybe they don't care about it because they don't hear about it. It's not something that politicians, you know, talk about enough. So I'm from a small farm town in the middle of California. And while foreign policy is never a hot topic on the golf course or at the brewery or what have you, trade itself, their exports to China are the prices that they can sell oranges. Tariffs are. So I think that also is a huge part of the education. Talking about foreign policy without actually saying foreign policy, which, yeah. as you say, is a turnoff. Yeah, I, I do worry about, you know, it, it, as China becomes increasingly important in the foreign policy and national security debate, it is easy to make China an enemy. It's a different ideological system. It's a different governing system. It's different race. Racial issues get involved in it, too. And uh, it's very easy, I think, for people to demonize, you know, trade the trade issues, as you say, uh, are salient to, to people uh, and and are important to people. And, you know, they, it has the, the virtue of being true, too, that, that the opening of China to the WTO was a huge shop to the uh, American economic system, something that we're only just getting over right now. Uh, the last 20 years, um, a lot of the manufacturing in the United States, the manufacturing shock was about moving uh, manufacturing to China. It, it's, it's incontrovertible. Uh, and uh, it's, it's finally getting done now, but the politics of it aren't done. And I do worry about this issue going forward. It's, it's clear that the Chinese are you know, competing with the US, see it as a competition, but we have to be very careful to not just make them a reflexive enemy, you know, uh, and uh, because that that could have a lot of a lot of more dangerous knock on effects in, in the years to come. It goes back to what you said earlier about America being able to rally against a common enemy. And that's and that's how America moves towards foreign right. policy. And, right. and you're right, especially in climate change. We talk about this a lot. You have to both collaborate right. as well as not defend necessarily, but stand your own ground against China in certain aspects. It's not right. a one size fits all type of strategy. Well, and, uh, and I, I'm going to use an example here from my my new position here as, as CEO <laughs> of the, the Fusion Industry Association. So on uh, China is very clearly spending money to, to build up the capacity to be the first country to build fusion power plants. And they see that as something that can be an export thing for them. And, and the United States both collaborates them, with them through the, the International EDER pro program. We have a, a pretty deep scientific collaboration globally on fusion energy, fusion research. Meanwhile, the, the private companies that are within my association know very strongly that the Chinese, uh, their Chinese counterparts would like to take their information and would like to steal their sort of stuff. So we have to, we have to balance this sort of scientific 
cooperation with the, the economic competition and, you know, kind of the race that, that we're under. And, and this is, we are not unique in this. Every other high-tech field is feeling this same pressure. I think this is a good a good spot to let me ask my last question. Sure. So you always like to ask us at the end of shows, what would the headlines uh, five years, 10 years be like? So I'm going to push that question on you. And you're looking at a newspaper in 2026 or 2031. What do you think the dominating headlines will be? And what do you think they should be? Which are two different questions. In national security and ASPs. In national security, uh, yes. Not the, not like, oh, Kim Kardashian did. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. What's, in, what's in People magazine? Or yeah, what did well, Kanye do next time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, sometimes I think about this. It's like, will there even be newspapers in 10 years? I okay, we're going to assume there are for the purposes <laughs> of this question. But the, the headline, yeah, and I think uh, headlines certainly aren't going to go away. What I'm hoping is that the headlines by 2026 and then certainly by 2030, 2031 will be about how America has altered its national security priorities and budgets so that it's not a militarized system. You know, that uh, the military should not be the sole use of American power. It's a very important part of American power, but we need the State Department, we need the Department of Energy, we need the Commerce Department, all of these others to, to be able to be our source of national power. Our source of national power does not come from, you know, the, the bombs on our stealth bombers, and it, it comes from the force of our ideas, and it comes from, you know, the strength of our economy. And so our scientific leadership, all of these sorts of things. So, you know, our whole society should be thought of as part of this, part of national security. It's not just, not just the government and it's especially not just the Pentagon. So uh, I, you know, I'd be all right with a, a revamped sort of strategic approach that, you know, we have to be careful that we don't just cut budgets at the Pentagon without cutting without changing strategy. Currently, we have not enough budget to meet the strategy that Congress is demanding of the Department of Defense. So maybe that that doesn't mean give them more budget, means give them a different strategy. And so so that's that's what I'd like to see. I'm hopeful that that the next decade is going to be a decade of peace and uh, and I think there's a good chance for that. Even under strategic competition, I think there's a good chance that we're going to see a, an outbreak of peace in the world. It may, may be a tense peace, but I don't, I don't see any sort of push towards wars, proxy wars, you know, that sort of stuff um, and, and over the next decade that, that you would have, if you'd look back 10 years ago, it was pretty easy to see that the Middle East was going to continue to be a zone of conflict and war. And that, you know, borders of Europe and uh, Russia were going to be, you know, contested. I don't think the next decade is, is going to play out that way. There's maybe, maybe there's, there's a sort of increased chance of really terrible war, you know, kind of the great power conflict mm-hmm. war that we talked about, U.S.-China, U.S.-Russia. Yeah. There's an increased 
chance of that, but it's, it, it's a non-zero chance, but it's still quite low. But I don't think that we're going to see these, these proxy wars or these sort of small but, in, but very costly wars as much as we've seen over the last two decades. I think that is a very optimistic take and a good place to end on. So, Andrew, what are your next steps? Yeah, so I'm going to be the CEO uh, of the Fusion Industry Association. Uh, it'll be a new 501c6 association that, that's going to be set up to advocate for the interests of uh, a, a growing new industry, fusion energy, as a source of clean, safe, secure, sustainable energy. We want to be a part of the, the climate and energy solutions for this country, and we're going to be out there advocating for that. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. If users want to learn more about the Fusion Industry Association, the links will be in the show notes. Thanks, Annie. Great. Thank you. Quite a ride. Thanks all for listening.